So many buttons to push. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back together, and it's good to uh, be continuing on through a study that we've been in for the past four or so weeks, looking at the book of John's Revelation, and more particularly at these seven letters that Jesus has given to the churches. So far as we've made our way through uh, the study, we've looked at the church of Ephesus, which Jesus commended and said that they, um, they were commended for being faithful to Him, for rejecting false teaching and protecting the faith and, and making sure that it was pure. But He condemned them, on the other hand, even though they protected the faith and made sure that it was pure, He condemned them because they had gotten so obsessed so fixated on preserving the faith that they had forgotten their first love, which is Christ. They have forgotten that they were a people purchased by Christ that belonged to Him. And we looked last week at the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna that had no com- condemnation, nothing wrong with it from the perspective of Christ, but they were enduring hardship and trial, and so Christ wrote to them as to encourage them as to remind them that they should remain faithful. And now we come to this third church in this series of letters that John has been instructed to send out to these churches in the Asia area, to the church in Paragamum or Paragamos. Both pronunciations are correct. Paragamum or Paragamos. I'm reading from the ESV, and so I'll try to say Paragamum since that is what my Bible translation says, just for the sake of consistency. Some of you might have a different translation that has spelled it Pragamos. They're both correct. Technically, they're both transliterations, so one's not more right or less right. And um, So we're looking at this church, and, and it's going to follow the same pattern that we've seen. The same pattern that we've seen in looking at the churches Jesus is going to introduce Himself. He's going to write to the church some sort of compliment. Then he's going to critique the church, tell them where they need to improve and why it's important that they need to improve. He's going to call them to improving in this area. And then he's going to give a reminder that this isn't just an instruction to the church, but that it's to individuals as well, even if they are in the church. Maybe they don't have influence, but to encourage them in that way. What's interesting about this letter, though, is that the church in Pergamum almost seems like the mere image or the opposite of the church in Ephesus. Remember, the church in Ephesus protected against false doctrine, but had forgotten their first, first love. The church in Pergamum, what we're going to find, stayed faithful to Christ, but had neglected to protect against false teaching. So let, let's get into it a little bit. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. We will look at verses 12 through 17. I pray your Bible's open in front of you. We're going to pray in just a moment and ask God to help us to understand the text, as we should always do before approaching God's Word. But as I'm reading, I want you to read along with me. So if you have your Bibles, make sure it's open there. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. Help us to turn to your Word and to understand it. And God, I ask that... Not just that we would understand it, Lord, but that our hearts would be in such a position that we would be ready to receive it. Your Word calls us to repentance. Your Word calls us to be pursuing You. And and part of the ways that we pursue You, Lord, is by recognizing Your Lordship, recognizing our failures, and, and identifying these things yielding to You. 
And, and so, Lord, I pray as we approach your word that we would have a, a spirit of humility that is ready to yield. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the wondrous truths found in your law, not just in an intellectual sense, Lord, but in a sense that grips are the whole man. And I pray that you would help us to respond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, the Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Paragamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All of God's people said. The introduction to this letter begins... Jesus says, as he said before, to the angel of the church, and this is, of course, to the messenger of the church, or this is a letter written first to the pastor who would carry this message to the church, and so to the angel or the messenger to this church, write. And this church we find is in Paragamum, and of all the cities that we've looked at so far, uh, Paragamum or Paragamos, we know the littlest about. But what we do know about it does give us kind of a picture of what the people in this area would have been experiencing. This city, like Smyrna, was a city that was well known in the Asia area as a place for worship. And when we talk about worship, we're not talking about Christian worship. We're not talking about Christian fellowship. It was actually an anomaly that a church existed in this place at all. This area had no less than five different temples built. One of them was to the a Roman god of healing. Um, a medical school was really what took place there. Zeus had a temple here, Dionysus. If you're not familiar with Dionysus, the only reason I'm familiar with it is because I was a theater kid in high school and that was the, the Roman god of, uh, patron god of, of theater. But, but really, it was absolute depravity was what Dionysus was. Um, drunkenness, lewdness, all of these things would have taken place as a form of worship to the God of lewdness and adultery and, and, and I, all of these things. So with that kind of in mind, we see the culture that would have been here. And, and it's an anomaly that this church exists at all. How is it that God's church was able to exist in such a culture? We saw last week looking at the church in Smyrna, it was an anomaly for them as well, but that that church was enduring hardship and trial and that Jesus said that the worst is yet to come. You're going to be thrown in jail. If you keep going like you're going, if you're faithful to me, you're going to be thrown in jail. And that's to your great benefit, as a matter of fact. Now, Paragamum's in a, the same situation, but there's no warning of encouragement for them. In fact, think about the way that Jesus has introduced himself so far. 
to the church in Ephesus, if you look back to chapter 2, verse 1, he says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, this church that had forgotten their first love needed to be reminded of, of Christ's position with the church. Christ is the one that holds the church in his hand. He's at the center of the seven lampstands. He's the one who owns the church, right? We talked about his preeminence in the church. To the church in Smyrna that's about to face persecution even into death, Christ says, verse 8, the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. You're about to die, but remember, because I'm Jesus Christ and I'm the Lord of the church, you don't need to fear death. I've already conquered death. And so you have this awaiting you. To the church in Pergamum, starting to escalate. The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Hot dog. Isn't that encouraging? What do you think the, the intention here of introducing himself as the one who has the two-edged sword? Why, why is this here to this particular church? It's not a decorative sword. It's sharp. Notice in the Bible, it doesn't just say to him who has a sword, a symbol of authority, a symbol of, of kingship, a symbol. It's a sharp two-edged sword. It, it's ready for battle. What, what is this sword? It, it is the word of God. Looking back at Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus had introduced himself, and we see this image of Christ, not as the slain lamb, not as the one hanging on a cross, not in an infant in a manger, but Jesus Christ as he is today in heaven glorified. He says, out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Students of the Bible are familiar with this imagery because we say that the Word of God and the Word of Christ is literally a sword. Hebrews teaches us that this is a sword that can divide asunder between soul and spirit. That is, between the soul and those sinful habits that by custom have become another soul or seem to be essential to it. Jesus Christ says, the one, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. It is both an offensive and a defensive weapon. There is no need, if, you're, if you know what you're doing with a sword, and I, I'm not among those, but there is no need to, you, to carry a shield. The sword can be used as a defensive weapon to protect against false doctrine. It can also be used as an offensive, uh, offensive weapon to attack false doctrine. In this kind of thought process, when we see the word two-edged sword, what comes to my mind is, is we use that phrase oftentimes whenever we're speaking to describe, well, it's a double-edged sword. You know, I go this one, this way I want to get cut, and this way I'm going to get cut. This is kind of a Sophie's choice of sorts. It's, kind of, it's a difficult decision. When we look at the two-edged sword that Christ is presenting himself as the one who has, I believe what we see is that there is no heart that is so hard that it cannot be pierced by the word of God. I just want to pause there for a second. Does the church truly believe that the word of God is all the power that the, is needed in order to see the lost people become saved? Is, do we believe that? Do we believe that the Word of God is enough? I'm asking you this question, and it's not necessarily just rhetorical. I really want you to evaluate whether you believe the Word of God is sufficient and enough to make a lost person become saved. Is it necessary that we add to the Word of God charismatic charm? 
Do we need a, a, somebody to proclaim the word of God that's handsome enough that people would look like him? If I looked like Quasimodo and I simply spoke the word of God, would it still be effectual to call the lost to be saved? I'm asking you this question because in the world that we live in, when we look at the many churches that surround us and the many churches that exist in the American culture and in the world's culture, it seems that many things are being added to the simple word of God. Worship services no longer place primacy or sufficiency on the Word of God, but rather pivot around means of entertainment. So-called pastors no longer preach sermons, but they preach sermonettes. You've heard this all before. We don't need more devotionals. We don't need more well-written books about, about how we can solve the problems in our life. We need more of the Word of God. Without the Word of God, we risk not being able to defend against false doctrine. Without the Word of God, we run the risk of not being able to provide an apology, or the Greek word apologia, where where Peter says you should always be able to provide a defense for what you believe. We can't stand up for what we say we believe in. And I wonder, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I wonder if the state of the Christian church, in confessing particular things, and not being able to say why they believe what they believe is an evidence of this fact. Have generations been raised to believe what we think is right? Have we been raised to look at a particular doctrinal statement and say, this is the Word of God? Have we forgotten that doctrinal statements are not the Word of God? The Bible is the Word of God, and a good doctrinal statement should be evidenced of study in the Word of God. It can divide asunder between soul and spirit. Have we forgotten that just because it feels right, looks right, and no one says that it's wrong, that if the Bible says that the way that we are living contradicts God, we are wrong. If you are the only person to recognize that the Bible called you to live in a particular way and yet you refuse to do it, you would be guilty of condemnation. This is what the Bible teaches. But it seems we would be more led to, to follow popular belief or even popular opinion. Churches in this state wind up like the church in Pergamum, compromising. The sword that Jesus speaks of has two edges because there is no escape from it. Whether we move from the left or the right, the sword has a sharp edge there ready to cut, to pierce. The sword carries with it the weight of the law that would refute transgressors. The sword also carries with it the surgical instrument that is able to perform surgery and to repair a broken heart. One of my favorite hymns is Amazing Grace. I know that's an unfamiliar hymn to a lot of people. Not many people are familiar with that hymn. The problem with a hymn becoming as familiar as Amazing Grace is we oftentimes sing the lyrics without thinking about what they mean. One of my favorite lines, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. 
What does that mean? What does it mean to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound? T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. I believe we have forgotten that to look face to face with the holiness of God is to be in a position of fear. Consider a moment... I don't know what your morning looked like. I don't know what it was like for you to get to work, uh, get to church this morning. I don't know what your week looks like. I don't know what you've gone through. I I don't know the kind of struggles you've had to deal with. I, I don't know any of that. Consider for a moment just the mistakes that you have made this week. And and I'm not talking about things that are egregious. I'm talking about what are the mistakes that you've made? Have you deprioritized the Word of God in your life that you have had no opportunity in God's Word from this past Sunday to this Sunday? Have you neglected prayer? Have you thought about your church at all? Is that just a weekend thing? Have you prayed for the saints that you are called to pray for? That you have, in fact, entered into a covenantal relationship to be in prayer for them? Have you let this allow something to become so passive in your life that you consider it prayer when it's just a fleeting thought? Have you become lazy? in your Christian disciplines. Consider the, and I'm not trying to condemn anyone in particular, except you. No, I'm just kidding. Consider just the natural laziness that produces itself in our walk with God. And imagine Jesus Christ speaking to you directly. If your knees don't tremble, you don't know who's speaking to you. If your chest doesn't feel light, you don't know who is speaking to you. When we think of fear, it is not just because Christ is scary. He's not scary. Just like our parents weren't scary. But when we got in trouble and we called into our parents' bedroom and we knew that we were in trouble and what we had done was wrong, did we feel happy and confident? Or did we feel like our world was about to be turned over? Think of the privilege that the church has in the world today. The church is the instrument that God has ordained to carry forward the gospel message. Not missions programs, not individuals, but the church of Jesus Christ. Think of the great privilege that the church has today, that there are some things in the Bible that are not set out in black and white. There are some things set out in the Bible that are not written in stone, but that the church actually has privilege to decide amongst themselves with the authority of God how they will practice particular things. Now, there are other things that the Bible does put in black and white, and we don't have those liberties. Consider the authority given to the church. The great liberty that she has. And consider Christ saying the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Consider 
there should be fear. Twas grace. And, and listen, if you don't know what I'm describing, come back to the song. It is an act of grace that we would have a heart that recognizes that such a position of fear is the work of God in us that we would see what He is doing. The next line goes on. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You see, in light of all of that fear, this two-edged sword, I said it has two operations. It has two functions. It causes our heart to fear like we should, and it also gives that fear relief because it reminds us that the one speaking to us is one who loves us, who is calling out to us, that is reaching for us, that wants us to respond to His Word. Jesus writes to the church this commendation, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I don't know what Satan's throne is a reference to. It could be the fact that the church in Paragamum was a city seat for the Roman Empire where emperor worship was commonplace. We discussed this in greater length last week, and I won't go over it again. I'd encourage you, though, if you weren't here last week, to go and listen to the church podcast on our website where you can hear what emperor worship looked like. The fact that Christians were being told that they had to declare Caesar as Lord. The fact that they were told that they had to go to a particular altar and sprinkle incense as an act of worshiping the city-state leader as a god. Yet, verse 13, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. What's phenomenal about this church is, is, is that, that they existed in a place where this persecution was taking place and they were founded by somebody that had already gone all of the way, as it were, as being a witness of Christ and, and being martyred. I was talking to Michelle about this. Um, of the, the word martyr, you know, we often think of a martyr as somebody that has died for the faith. The actual word martyr in Greek translates to the English word witness or somebody that testifies. To be a martyr, to die for the faith, is to testify for the church. I love that Antipas is, is mentioned here because according to the Bible, he's not mentioned anywhere else. This is his record in history. Antipas, my faithful witness. I love that. I think it's phenomenal. He was killed among you. But then Jesus turns his attention not just on what the church has done right, not just that they've been founded, not just that they've endured. But he writes, I have this against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. This church is guilty if we look at verse 15. So you have allowed some to bring in the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is this church truly guilty of? They're guilty of not preserving the faith. 
We, we discussed when we looked at the church in Ephesus what, who the Nicolaitans were and what they believed in, that they were those that would lord over the people, that would establish some sort of hierarchy within the church. And listen, there is a hierarchy in the church. It's Christ and the church. There's no in-between. There's no intermediaries. There's, there's nothing between the church and Christ. The individual submits to the authority of the church. The church is under the lordship of Christ. Pastors, deacons, all these offices that we discuss, they exist to serve the church. They are not an authority. In, well, that's the wrong way to say it. They are not to lord over the people. Their authority comes from the word of God, and it should only come from the word of God. Anything else is abuse. And, and then... Jesus Christ uses this reference. He says, there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel. How many of you are familiar with Balaam and Balak? Show of hands. A couple of you. Man, if you're not, you're going to love it. That's one of the best stories in the whole Bible. Balaam, incidentally, is a Hebrew word that means the same thing as Nicolaitans. It literally means to lord over the people or to conquer the people. The story of Balaam and Balak is recorded in Numbers 22 through 25. This area of the history of Israel tells the story of Balaam who was a prophet, a real prophet, who had the ability to, to divine the future and in many ways, and he was well known in the area, and the king, Balak. Balak, the nation of Moab, saw that the Israelites were coming, into the, coming out of the wilderness, and they were coming upon him, and they had just killed the Amalekites, and, and they had conquered them, and they had conquest there. And so Balak is afraid because he has heard of the power of God. He's heard of the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and is in the center of the seven lampstands, the one who speaks with a sword coming from his mouth, a two-edged sharp sword. And Balak sends men out to go and get Balaam. Because he's, he's caught on to something. He's realized that this person who divines things, the people that he blesses are blessed, and the people that he curses are cursed. And so he says, if I could just pay this man to curse Israel, my military just might have a chance. Here's the problem with Balaam. He would sell his services. He would sell his talents. This would be like a church charging an admission fee. And no one show up if I showed them charge an admission fee, right? He would sell what God had given him like a prostitute. So Balak came and God, the first time the, the, these men, this party comes from, from Balak, he refuses. He says, God won't let me go. But he's, man, I really want to go. And you can almost feel his, his interest here. He's like, I could make a lot of money. This guy's a king. Imagine what I could do if I could just go and curse Israel for him. So he leaves. He comes back. King Balak sends a, gets ready to send another party. He says, no. And Balak says, man, I really want to go. And so he goes and he asks God, you know, this party comes to him and he says, will you please come with us? And, and he says, I can't go. God won't let me go. Sorry about that. They go off and camp and they say, well, maybe you'll change your mind. And, and Balaam goes back and he inquires of the Lord and he says, Lord, will you please let me go with these people? Can you imagine how much money I would make? He doesn't say that to God, you know, but, but he says that kind of to himself. And the problem is, is that God's one who can see all of this. And so he 
The Lord says, if they come to you in the morning, you can go with them. Here's where Balaam messes up. He saddles up his donkey and he heads out. They hadn't come to him, but he was so eager he had he'd gotten permission, conditional permission. If they came to him in the morning, he could go. Well, throw that aside. You know, we often hear only what we want to hear. If we want to be upset, we find a reason to be upset. If we want to be happy, we find a reason to be happy. It's, so he heads out. And he's riding on his donkey. And he's passing through a, kind of a narrow area. Numbers 22.18. I'm sorry, 22.32. I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. Somewhere in Numbers chapter 22. The angel of the Lord is sent to stand in the path. Now, Balaam himself cannot see the angel of the Lord, but the donkey can. And so his donkey veers off and crushes his foot against the side of this wall. So he strikes his donkey. The angel of the Lord continues to stand there in this path, and the donkey eventually lies down, and Balaam strikes his donkey again. And so the Bible says... The Lord opened the donkey's mouth. And his donkey turns around and faces Balaam and he says, Why are you hitting me? Balaam says, Because you won't go. He says, Have I not been a good donkey all of your life? Have I not done what you've told me to do all of your life and now I lay down and you think I'm just disobedient? And then the angel of the Lord reveals himself to Balaam. Balaam falls down on his face and worships the angel of the Lord. This is what tells us that this angel of the Lord, this picture, because he permits worship, he allows Balaam to do this, is not just an angel or a messenger, but this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ standing before him, the one who holds the two-edged sword. And the angel asks him, 20, Numbers 22, verse 32, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. He describes what Balaam is doing in prostituting himself to the world as perverse. The angel of the Lord tells Balaam that if the donkey had not laid down if it had not veered off that he was ready to kill Balaam in his place for the perversion that he had brought forward. He tells him to keep going. Balaam offers to turn around and go back home. But the angel of the Lord instructs him to go forward all the way to King Balak and to only speak what the Lord speaks. To say no more, to add nothing to it, to speak what the Lord speaks, because the Word of God is enough. Balaam gets to Balak, he gets all of his reward, all of his treasures, and as he blesses, and he does this three times, and then a couple of last times, he blesses the nation of Israel. God has turned the situation around even to a even to a money-mongering soothsayer. He's turned the situation around that Israel would be blessed by his prophecy. But Balaam ends up giving King Balak the advice that he needs. 
If we look at the end of this narrative in Numbers 25, we find where the real problem existed. The first three verses of that chapter say, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to... They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. What was the real victory that that King Balak received? It was pretty simple. If you can't beat them, join them. This is the same thing that Satan does in his churches. If you can't beat them, join them. I don't know if you've ever been dumbfounded by the fact that the the church is successful and most successful when the preaching of God's word is at the center of what the church does, when ministries are evaluated according to the word of God, when it contradicts human wisdom, when when all of these things, you know, we're trained and and we know how to run businesses and we have pretty good common sense. And we live in a time where everyone, I think, is pretty brilliant and The church does things that contradict the world's way of doing things, and the church is still here. It's still successful. It stands where Satan's throne dwells. It stands in a culture and a time when people are against the world, against the church. When persecution has increased even in our day. And with all of this, what is Satan's Ultimate battle plan. Jesus gives us the parable of the wheat and the tares. As the farmer goes out and he sows wheat in his land, he looks up one morning and there are tares growing among the wheat. If you can't beat them, join them. As a consequence of Israel acquiescing to the ways of the Moabites, 24,000 people died. The people of God who were promised, who, who promised blessing hoard themselves with the world that they lived in and 24,000 people died. In Revelation, th- this book as a whole, we find this picture consistently presenting itself with the world being presented as an idolatrous place, an adulterous place. And the church is presented not in the terms of not in the terms of a whoring harlot, but the church is presented as a bride in white and pure clothing. We must remember that the church is the bride of Christ and is supposed to be kept pure. Our purity towards Christ in doctrine and in teaching matters. It's really all that matters. Because the confrontation that we find, this letter that's written to the church, the instruction that we can take from this is that Christ stands as the one with a sharp two-edged sword ready to stand against us. Allowing the infiltration of these Nicolaitans among the people who had lured themselves over them. And I believe that this is commonplace in the church. There are those that are attracted to the church as a place of power. It's, it's, where, it's where people gather voluntarily. And if you do well and you're recognized, you can... Hold some power. The same things that exist in the workplace exist in the church. There are people that are, that are after position more than they are after worshiping God. Even worse than that, there are some people in the church who are afraid 
to face the realities of this world and what God's Word says and would compromise for comfort their position in Christ. I know this has been a little dry this morning. There's a lot of history to unpack to really understand what what Christ is saying to this church. But let's back away just for a second and, and consider what are the ways that the church compromises today? How do Christians compromise the testimony of Christ? Remember martyrs, that word testimony? How do they compromise their testimony with Christ? We want to be a part of the church, but we also want to be a part of clubs and societies and organizations outside of the church where we can make friends, where we can live life, where we can um, position ourselves well. Even if those clubs and societies do things that are in opposition against the Word of God, even if they teach fidelity that goes beyond God. That's compromise, friend. That's compromise with the world. That's, that's trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And most of the time, there's not even a foot in the church. What's another way that we compromise with the world? Through politics. This is my personal biggest frustration. I realize if this isn't your personal frustration, that's okay. This is commentary at this point. But through politics... Especially among younger saints, it seems that we have taken the idea that Jesus could be contained by a particular political ideology. Friends, that's simply heretical. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. And I believe that the church needs to hear this. We need to realize that the donkey won't save us. That the elephant won't save us. That the Lamb is the only one who will save us. If we get distracted from that, we have missed what Christ has come here to do for us because we belong to Him. Thinking anything else, not only do I say that it's heretical, but it's compromised, friend. How else do we compromise? We compromise by being silent when we should be loud. We don't condemn sin in the world like we should. In fact, we are so focused on being approachable so focused on making sure that people feel welcome and loved despite things that God declares to be an abomination, that we have compromised the very testimony of Christ that He has given to us. How else does the church compromise? I'm preaching to the choir, right? All three of those things that I've mentioned, everyone I'm pretty sure agrees with. You might disagree on some different area, but pretty much we all agree on those. Those are areas of compromise. Here's the one that I think really touches the church today. How do we compromise? We simply refuse to grow up. We simply refuse. We say, it's too complicated. I'm too intertwined with everything else that I'm doing in the world. I don't need to understand everything that the Bible says. It's not for me. That's for people that are called to work in that area and to work in that arena. We simply refuse to grow up. We hold beliefs that we have been taught in our childhood. And when we're asked to defend those beliefs, we say, well, I really don't know why I believe it, but that's what I've always been told. And so I feel safest there. Friend, if you believe something about the church, if you believe something about Jesus Christ, if you believe something about the Bible, if you believe something about what is going to happen in the kingdom of God, and you cannot defend it for yourself, you've simply compromised. 
You've allowed somebody else to lord their position of authority over you so that they tell you what to think and you don't think for yourself. That's compromise. If you cannot turn to the Bible as the evidence for what you believe, then you are as bad as the Nicolaitans, those that would lord themselves over them. How else do we compromise? We simply refuse to grow up. We neglect the church. We neglect our fellowship with one another. We neglect the one another's. We, we treat it as if it's something that we do on a particular day of the week, or, and it's not something that, that, that changes everything about our life. Christians, you know who your friends should be? People in the church. Well, there's not enough people in the church to be my friends. Then you should be a faithful witness. As a matter of fact, the, the, just saying that and saying that your friends aren't in the church, that's a condemnation against you that you have compromised that your testimony isn't being proclaimed among them. You say, well, my friends go to other churches. They're faithful members of other churches. That's well and good. You're telling me that all of your friends are like that? You're telling me that your friends can serve in their church and you can serve in your church and you guys maintain this close relationship with one another? You're not churching. You're simply behaving as the world behaves. How does the church compromise? We simply refuse to grow up. We neglect spiritual disciplines. Loved ones, when spiritual disciplines in our life begin to erode, spiritual passion declines as well. You want to know the reason for a listless Christian, why an apathetic Christian would continue to sit in a pew, why we would continue to go through the motions, why we would do things that seem right, but we wouldn't live on fire for the Lord? It's because we have neglected to grow up. Jesus gives us a plain instruction in verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. Turn away from compromise. Come towards Christ. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. People ask, how is it possible that churches close their doors? How is it possible that churches die? How is it possible that if Christ is over all of these things, how do entire congregations die? Even those that don't compromise, they lose the love of Christ. They focus on defending the faith more than loving Christ. Or they go the opposite direction and they focus on loving the world rather than loving Christ. And as a result of that, they compromise the faith that has come to them and Christ himself comes and he wars against the church. If you put this in perspective with the church in Ephesus, Ephesus is a reminder that Christ is Lord. The church in Pergamum is reminded that he has authority over them. This is a much more severe condemnation. Failing to defend the faith is as simple as not knowing why we believe what we believe. But he gives us a call. Not just if the, if the church won't repent. If all of the people won't repent. But anyone, in verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's two images or two pictures that are given to us as the one who conquers, the one who repents, the one who doesn't compromise with the world. He tells us he will give us the hidden manna and he tells us he will give us a new white stone with a secret name on it. The hidden manna has been around for a long time because we ask, how is it possible that Christ will provide for us? Very simply, he provided for Israel in the wilderness and he will provide for the one who is faithful to repent and to refuse to compromise in the midst of the world. He will provide him hidden manna. The picture in the New Testament is that of the, the Lord's Supper, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, that we would experience communion and the peace that comes from that. That through this bread and through this fellowship, through obeying Christ and coming to the ordinances with the right heart position, that we will experience the blessing of the hidden manna. The white stone with the name on it, well, it has two meanings. The white stone in the ancient world was a symbol both of being acquitted of a crime. A judge would present a white stone to a person who had been acquitted of a crime so that they were free to go. And it was also a ticket. If you had a white stone and it had your name on it, you could go to a dinner party. Those were the two ways that white stones were used in the first century. Both of these images apply to the church, to the bride, to the one who conquers. We will be acquitted despite all our sins, despite listfulness, if we will repent, we will come to Christ, if we will live on fire for the Lord, if we'll come to Him and ask Him to start a fire in our heart, if we do these things, we will be acquitted in the court of the Lord. We will be declared just in the eyes of God. Furthermore, you'll be invited to the wedding banquet of the saints. What I find interesting is this last phrase in verse 17 with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So many people want to come to a, a pastor. You know, they, they fall in this, to this trap. How do I know if I'm saved? They want to know, how do I know if I'm, I'm really one of those? Because when you describe compromise, when you describe all of these other things, there's a lot of it that, that seems to apply to me and the way that I live my life. The only one who knows the name that is written on the stone, the only one that knows whether that stone is given to that person is the one who receives it, who knows if their name is on it and knows if they are invited into the kingdom banquet. The assurance of salvation comes in the confidence that we have that God has saved us. Loved ones, I, I'm wrapping up. When we discuss compromise in the church, I believe the greatest reason Christians seek compromise is simply for maintaining or establishing some comfort for themselves. The reason we would allow our jobs to become an idol, the reason why we would allow sports teams to become an idol, the reason all of these things would become as pervasive as they are is because we are seeking comfort entertainment to distract us from hardship. We're not seeking Christ. The only reason where these things come is because we're seeking comfort that belongs in the manna that Christ gives us, in the white stone that He will give us, and turning to Him. The greatest contribution to our compromise is that we are seeking comfort 
from this earth instead of rest in God. I mentioned Amazing Grace, and I doubt many of you will know the, the old hymn, Oh, Grant Me, Lord, That Sweet Content. Maybe some of you do. Oh, grant me, Lord, that sweet content that sweetens every state, which no internal fears can rent nor outward foes abate. Thou wilt keep me, keep him in perfect peace. Thy word, the truth, hath said, who clothed with thy great righteousness, thy arm his strength has made. Grant me then, Lord, a contrite heart, a meek and quiet breast, thy own unspotted mind in part, thy own unshaken rest. That rest for humble souls prepared, the bosom of thy love, where patience finds her full reward when perfect, perfected above. Give me then grace this rest to seek, and as I seek to find, my heart all pure, my soul all meek, the copy of thy mind. So shall I know thy utmost power, the utmost glory prove, and in eternity adore the matchless gift of love. God has given to us the gift of grace if he has caused fear in our heart. And he promises us if we have taken that fear and if we live by it, that he's also called us to relief, to rest in that. No matter the circumstance, no matter what our friends say, no matter what the world says, Christians are supposed to find comfort in Christ. There's not an alternative source of peace. It's not knowing the Bible and, and knowing it front to back. Our source of peace comes from living in God's presence. If we neglect that, we will compromise. Because as humans, we're all created to find some source of provision to provide for ourselves, to provide for our family. We've been conditioned to live our lives in particular ways and to find success in particular terms. Listen, if we do not find our rest and our content in Jesus Christ, we will compromise. Father in heaven, I ask that you would guide our hearts this morning, that you would help us, Lord, to seek after you and to seek after the promises that you give us those promises of content and those promises of peace. And Lord, I pray that as we are gathered together this morning, as we prepare to stand and as we prepare to sing, God, that you would move in the hearts of all of us. God, if there is repentance, that we would come forward, that we would repent. God, if there is just the desire to seek you and to love you and to be in your presence that we would seek after you with everything that we have. Lord, we have set this day aside for your glory. John called it the Lord's Day. I pray that I wouldn't become distracted by anything else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you sing?